And let's uh, turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As you're turning in your Bibles to this great passage in God's Word, I want to just uh, remind you again that in two Sunday nights from now, uh, we will be having a concert of prayer here at the church. This will be a concert of prayer that we will be joined by other churches who will, who will come. And so I'm asking that there will be a great representation of our people here in order that we can welcome those who come from other churches. We know uh, specifically right now that there will be seven churches involved, and uh, there are a number, perhaps a number, number about 15 more uh, that have been invited, and they may be coming as well. So uh, set aside June 4 uh, for a wonderful evening and a concert of prayer. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I have uh, spent the week immersed in this passage. Uh, I think I could practically quote it word for word at this point in time. You can check me on that after worship if you like. But um, this is a passage that has a way of, of gripping you emotionally, transforming you inwardly, and convicting you incredibly. Because as you measure your life by what Paul says, uh, truly we have all fallen short of the glory of God. The late Dr. Alan Redpath said that 1 Corinthians 13 will give you a spiritual suntan by its its warmth. How true. There's something pleasant about it. It's a masterpiece, really. A wonderful song, a song of love. Its lyrical lines have a poetic cadence to it. And so you and I know that quite often it gets read at at weddings and read again at anniversaries, and rightly so. But for the most part, most Christians have heard 1 Corinthians 13 read or explained outside of the context in which it was originally written. Because as wonderful as it is to read it at a wedding, in a wedding it is cut loose from the context in which the Apostle Paul gave it. So for order, in order for us, for all of us, to truly understand what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about, We need to look at it in the context in which Paul wrote it because this passage is an important part of our consideration of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which we talked about last Sunday morning. Now, last Sunday morning, I said some things to you about the gifts of the Spirit, and and there's been a number of different reactions. Uh, um, Most of them have been very, very good. But we talked about the fact that that the gifts of the Spirit are unique expressions of service. Some of the reactions were because people had never considered this before. That they are manifestations of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit shows up, as it were, in church, when we gather, he manifests himself in these ways. They showcase the the Trinity. And here's the one thing that really grabbed people last Sunday morning is that the gifts of the Spirit are actually a reproduction of the ministry of Jesus that we can see in Jesus. If you read his ministry, 
in the four Gospels that are given to us, each one of the gifts of the Spirit are there except for two. And of course, they are given for the building up of the church. Now, if we take these last two things, the reproduction of the ministry of Jesus and the building up of the church as really the main thrust of the Apostle Paul in chapters 12 through 14, and it really is his main thrust. If we take those two things in mind, we find now that between chapter 12, in which he initially introduces the subject of spiritual gifts, and chapter 14, in which he gets a little bit more specific about their use within the church, nestled between the two is this poem, as it were, about love. So we have to ask ourselves, like, Why would Paul insert this right there? Because to be very, very frank, you could go from chapter 12, skip chapter 13, and go right to 14 and get the totality of Paul's instructions about the gifts of the Spirit, except for one very, very important point, the point that he makes here in chapter 13. Paul is writing to address a problem in the church. And the problem isn't the gifts of the Holy Spirit per se. The problem is the way the gifts are being exercised in the church. The problem is the people who are using the gifts in a certain way. I think it's clear, and we don't have time to jump to chapter 14, but we will next week. But if you read chapter 14 through, I think it's very, very clear that, that, that Paul was concerned about the Corinthians being so focused, frankly, on self-promotion and self-gratification and self-edification. Their focus wasn't reproducing the ministry of Jesus or building up the church. They were enamored with certain gifts of the Spirit, particularly speaking gifts. Now, all of the gifts of the Spirit involve some speaking in some way or another, and all of the gifts of the Spirit involve serving in one way or another, but some gifts are more about speaking, and some gifts are more about serving. And it appears that it was these speaking gifts that were a lot more spectacular and sensational in nature that they were fixated on. In other words, they loved the dramatic. It was more about themselves than it was about others. In a sense, the problem about spiritual gifts was the same problem the Corinthians faced when it came to the Lord's table, in which the Lord's table became all about themselves and their own personal gratification than about the edification of others. And this this self-focus in terms of the gifts of the Spirit was the very thing that was contributing to some members of the church in the body feeling like they're insignificant members of the body and other members of the body feeling like they were independent of everyone else within the body. So chapter 13 was written, designed actually by Paul to combat this problem within the church. It was written as a tonic to cure what was going on in the church. So again, look at chapter 12, verse 31. Chapter 12, 31, the last verse, but desire eagerly, the desire, eagerly desire the greater gifts. And the second part of the, sen- the sentence, 
and now I will show you the most excellent way. Desire those gifts that build and serve and edify the church. But let me tell you something else, he says. Don't just desire those gifts because they're other-focused. There's something else. The most excellent way. And so beginning here in verse 1, chapter 13, 1, he speaks here of the supremacy of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, he's actually quoting Jesus here. Remember, Jesus spoke about a, 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 seed, a mustard seed of faith that could move a mountain. If I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. He actually mentions four of the gifts of the Spirit, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, and faith. Pretty important gifts in the church. But Paul says, love is superior to all of, these, all of these gifts. Now, what does he mean by love here? And we, we use the word love in English in so many different ways. If, if, if I say to you, I love pizza, and then I say to you, I love my wife, I hope you understand that I love my wife, I was going to say pizza, I love my wife more than I love pizza. That there's a certain quality about my love for my wife that's very different about my love for pizza. By the way, I really don't love pizza that much, but since I've come to this church for the last 15 years, it's like pizza at every event. <laughs> now you understand why I have to leave. The quality of my love for pizza is very different than the quality of love for my wife. But when we use the word love in Eng English, it's, it's, it's usually like, like an emotion. It's, it's, it's a feeling that we have. The Greek language is much richer in its usage of the word love because they just don't have the word love. They have four different words to describe love. Eros, which is romantic or sexual love. Phileo, which is friendship love. It's brotherly love. It's where we get the word philanthropy from. Storge, which is a familiar love. It's a, a, a family kind of love. I love my brother. I love my mother. I love my father. It's, it's storge love, family love. But the love that is used here, the word love that is used here is, you, most people say agape, but it's agape. Agape. And it, it's not describing um, uh, uh, em emotional feelings of love. It's, it's not based on, on affection or approval. It is actually unconditional love. In other words, the love is given not because the one who receives the love deserves the love, but usually, on the contrary, the one who receives the love does not deserve the love. Agape love is a decision of the will to act in the best interests of someone else. Quoting Dr. Alan Red, Redpath again, he says that the word agony, the English word, comes from the Greek word 
agape, agony, agape, meaning the actual absorption of our being in one great passion in which we agonize. And don't we see this in the life of Jesus when, when he washes the disciples' feet or he speaks so tenderly and kindly and forgivingly to a woman who was caught in the act of adult, adultery or even in his death on the cross. This is agape love. And Paul says here, it doesn't really matter which gift of the Spirit you're talking about. He, he uses four as an example. Probably because at least the first one was, was at first and the second ones that he mentioned. If I have the gift of tongues, I can speak in the tongues of men and angels. And if I can prophesy, probably he mentions those two because those are the ones he's going to deal with in chapter 14, which seem to be the ones that were being abused. But it doesn't really matter what gift of the Spirit it actually is. The point is, is that the gifts of the Spirit don't compare at all with, with love. The point is, no matter what the gift is, without love, the exercise of that gift is just nothing more than noise. It has no spiritual significance at all, is what Paul's saying. Gordon Fee, the, the great Pentecostal theologian who just passed away a few months ago, writes in his com commentary on this passage, possession of the charismata, that is the gifts, is not the sign of the Spirit. Christian love is. And he's bang on. Verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now Paul is telling us that love is superior to the greatest of sacrifices that we could ever make. Now the word sacrifice is familiar to us because, because we know that the Christian life begins with sacrifice. It, it's all about sacrifice in one sense. The Christian life is rooted in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. But, but the call that comes to us is to deny ourselves and to take up the cross and follow Christ. If anyone would be my disciple, Jesus said, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And we know that there are times in the life of the church where, where it is necessary for us to, to appeal to one another about making sacrifices. Like when we did our building expansion here. And we asked you, the people of God, to, to give in a sacrificial way that we could complete the facility here or to pay the mortgage down. And there may be other times that we come to you with special appeals like an offering for refugees or, or earthquake relief in some part of the world and we're asking you to dig deep and to give sacrificially at those times. Sometimes we know that even the regular doing of good which should characterize all of our lives requires sacrifice. It requires sacrifice of our energy. It requires the sacrifice of our time and even of our money. But friends, we can be the most sacrificial people in the world. And if we don't have love, Paul says, we are nothing. 
He takes this whole thing of sacrifice one step further, not just if I give all I possess to the poor, but if I even surrender my body to the flames, if, if, if I become a martyr for Jesus Christ, and none of us would ever question the true spirituality of someone who was willing to be loyal and to die for the faith. But even if we give our, our lives to be burned in the flames and we do not have love, we are nothing. We gain nothing. If we are determined to remain loyal to the faith in this age of compromise and confusion in which we live, there may be a cost to pay. And I have a feeling within our lifetime, and should God give me another 20 years, I think within my lifetime too, we are going to see great cost of following Jesus in Canada. If we're loyal to the gospel, the signs are already there. But if we're gonna do that just because of loyalty's sake, then it means Nothing, Paul says. Without love, we are nothing. I want to make two um, observations here, if I could, at this point. First of all, I want to talk about to you, just for a moment, about pastors, preachers of the gospel, who are very well known, who we know have fallen into moral sin. Let me talk about them first. And then I want to give you what I think might be a paraphrase of these verses for us today. When a well-known pastor, any pastor for that matter, who has had a good ministry, when it is learned that he has fallen into moral sin, sometimes the individuals who've been most influenced by that man of God refuse to believe that it actually happened. And the reason is, is we find it difficult to reconcile the giftedness of that man with the failure morally of his life. In other words, I remember there was a, a well-known man in the, in, in the United, he was known in a certain circle within the United States, and, and, and he had a ministry. He led hundreds and hundreds of people to Christ. He was an evangelist. And no one could believe that an evangelist could fall. Someone who was so concerned about winning souls to Christ and so able to do so, that this could happen to him. But again, friends, this underscores this truth that, 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 that the giftedness of an individual is not the true sign of the spirituality of that person. It is love, Paul says. The love of God in someone. You can have all of the greatest gifts of all and still live self-centeredly. Our good works do not reveal our true experience with God or the depth of our faith. The second thing is, how would Paul write these verses to us today? What would Paul say? And I, I say that because it's easy for us 2,000 years away from what happened here to kind of look back on the Corinthians and to judge them. And let's be frank, most Baptist churches are not tempted to have an outbreak of speaking in tongues or wonderful displays of emotion. So what would Paul say to us today in these verses? Maybe something like this. 
if we have the greatest worship times with the, with the best of musical talent and not have love, it's meaningless. If we have great facilities to meet in and space for all kinds of programs to, to, to occupy ministries to kids and to youth and to adults and to seniors, but we don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. And if we produce periodically wonderful dramas like The Voyage of the Dawn Treader and, and pack the church out and bring the community in to create all kinds of opportunities to, to hear the gospel of Christ, but we don't have love? What is it? It's nothing. If we have wonderful community groups and we see those community groups expanding and growing, giving birth to others, and people get incorporated into them and they feel like they're, they're welcomed, but we don't have love? It's nothing. And if we actually reproduce the ministry of Jesus through the gifts of the Spirit without love, it's nothing more than a noise. It's a, it's, it's a sounding gong. It's a, it's a clanging cymbal. That's really all it is. The point is, is that, that all of these good things, tongues and prophecy and faith and sacrifice, means absolutely nothing. The test of true spirituality is not the gifts that we have, but the love that should be in our hearts. Dr. Haddon Rob Robinson said this once, and I want to quote it several times today so that it sinks in. He wrote, love is that thing which, if a church has it, it doesn't really need much else. And if it doesn't have it, whatever else it has doesn't really matter much. So in verses 1 through 3, Paul is not depreciating the particular gifts that he mentions or any gift of the Spirit. What Paul is doing is he's refusing to recognize anything positive about those gifts unless these gifts are discharged with the love of God in our hearts. Love is supreme, and it is essential to the life and the ministry of the church. Now, beginning at verse 4, Paul begins to describe love for us. He talks to us about the character of love, and you'll notice he doesn't give us a, def a dictionary definition. He doesn't say love is this and give a definition of what love is but he does describe love in a number of different ways. He tells us what love, what it is, he tells us what it is not, and he tells us what it does. In other words, each one of the words that Paul uses now in, in the following verses, there are 15 words that he uses. In each one of them, they are action words. What love is, look at verse four. Love is patient. Love is kind. What love is? Love is patient. Now, when Paul says love is patient, he's not saying love is patient and that it doesn't get upset when it's sitting at a very long red light. <laughs> but he is, what he's saying is love is patient with people. Love, love is willing to bear the weaknesses of other individuals. Love is, is willing to make allowances 
for people's shortcomings. You know the word long-suffering? That's what, that's what is being described here. That's what patience is. It's being willing to suffer long in the service of others. And this is the way God acts toward us. Love is kind. In other words, love treats others gently and considerately. Uh, love, love speaks with, with good words. Love does good to others. Love gives freely because love is kind. Now, in verse 4, he, he changes it and puts it in a negative way. Love is patient. Love is kind. Now, but love is not, what love is not, he says love does not, does not envy. Now, there's a word we, we read a lot, but we don't like to really meditate on it much. You see, envy is the least productive and the most damaging of sins. Envy accomplishes nothing but hurt. Envy is no small matter. And I say that because it was envy that murdered Abel. Genesis 4, Cain envied his brother Abel and he murdered him. Joseph's brothers envied Joseph and they enslaved him, finally in Egypt. And the chief priests and the rulers of the people in Matthew chapter 27 envied Jesus and they murdered him. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. In other words, love doesn't parade itself. Love doesn't walk around saying, look at how much I love everybody. Look at how wonderful I am. Love, love doesn't boast. It does not parade itself. And whenever you see a parading of so-called love, it is not love that is being paraded. Love doesn't seek the limelight. Love, love doesn't seek the attention. Love doesn't have to be, oh, it's all focused on me. Love is not proud, closely related to boasting, but meaning love is not puffed up. Love, love is not arrogant. Love is not self-focused. Love is not big-headed. And yet it is possible to be proud even of spiritual things. And the worst pride is spiritual pride. I read this this past week. Pride of face is obnoxious. Pride of race is vulgar. But the worst pride is pride of grace. And wasn't that the problem of the Jews? We're the chosen people. By God's grace, he chose us. And so the Gentiles were nothing more than dogs. Spiritual pride is the worst pride of all. Pride of spiritual gifts is the worst pride of all. Paul goes on and he says in the next line, love is not rude. In other words, love always produces good manners. Now, when you take these four, envy, boasting, pride, and rude, if you take these four, immediately you see that love, that each of these four words is in some way about competition. Love is not competitive. In other words, love is not in competition with other people. 
Love rejoices when others achieve. Next phrase, love is not self-seeking. It doesn't insist on its own way. Love is not easily angered. It's not irritable or resentful for others. It is not easily upset or offended. It's not easily angered. What comes next? It keeps no record of wrongs. It, It doesn't hold a grudge. Love doesn't store up all the things you did to me. It puts away the hurts of the past. The next line, love does not delight in evil. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love never says, well, he got what he deserved. He got what was coming to him. Love doesn't stand by and just let evil happen. Now, in verse 7, he talks about what love does. In the New International Version, it reads... It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Another translation, the ESV puts it this way. It bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, and love endures all things. In other words, love doesn't give up on people. Love, when it comes to others, loving others, love is stubborn. The biblical way of saying that is love is steadfast. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Love endures. Love perseveres. Love carries on. And it bears all things. And it believes all things. It it trusts. It, it, It hopes. This is why Peter says that love covers a multitude of sins. Not because, because it's loving to simply take a brush and to, and to you know, wipe someone's sins underneath a carpet so you can't see them. That's not what Peter means when he says love covers a multitude of sins. He's not saying covering up the sin so nobody knows about it, but love covers a multitude of sins in that it bears with what? The faults of other people. It is patient is essentially what he's saying. Spurgeon calls these four things in verse 7 loves four sweet companions. And I want to read to you, I want to quote for him, from, from him today, I want to read to you an illustration that he gave on this, from this passage on what love is. And he compared love to an oyster, an oyster. And he said, he said this, I would, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would all, that we could all imitate the pearl oyster, A hurtful particle intrudes itself. A piece of sand gets into the shell of the oyster. The oyster doesn't want it there, but the oyster doesn't have the ability to eject the piece of sand. A hurtful particle intrudes itself into its shell, and this vexes and grieves it. It cannot eject the evil. And what it And what does it do but cover it with a precious substance extracted out of its own life by which it turns the intruder into a pearl? And Spurgeon gives this exhortation. Oh, that we could do so with the provocations we receive from our fellow believers. 
so that the pearls of patience, gentleness, long-suffering, and forgiveness might be bred within us by that which has harmed us. Most of us can bear all things and believe all things and hope all things for a while at least. But the greatness of agape is that it keeps on loving. It keeps on persevering. It always perseveres. It always endures. I want to give you some, some homework. Are you okay with that? You, you don't have to bring your homework, homework back next week, but some of you will want to talk about homework in your community groups this week. And here's the homework. I want you to just start to read in the Gospels this week. Choose anyone, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And as you read the life of Jesus, I want you to try to, first of all, find where the gifts of the Spirit are seen in Jesus. But I also want you to see where do these qualities of love, all 15 of them, show up in the life and the ministry of Jesus? And if you need a clue or need a little bit of help to discover that, go to all the passages where Jesus interacts with Peter, who disappoints him constantly. And how does Jesus act toward Peter? What does Jesus say toward Peter or about Peter? That's the homework for this week. Now, I want you to see the final thing here, and that is Paul speaks of love's preem preeminence or per, 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 permanence first. He talks about that first. Verse 8, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Two things I want you to see here. Number one, the gifts are going to end. The gifts will end. There will come a point in time when the gifts of the Spirit will end. The gifts will not be needed anymore. Secondly, the perfect will come. But, verse 10, but when perfection comes, the imperfect, meaning the gifts, disappear. And this all hangs on what he says in verse 8, love never fails. In other words, love is going to outlive all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are needed now. They are appropriate now in the church. But there is coming a time in the future when the gifts of the Spirit will no longer be needed. And he gives two illustrations of this. In verse 11, he refers to himself as to when he was a child. And then in verse 12, he speaks about a mirror. Let's look at what he says in verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. What does Paul mean? Well, he's saying what we, we all know, that there are certain things that are appropriate for children to do. There are certain kinds of things that children use. There are children's toys and children's storybooks, and, and we have cribs that we put kids in. And, 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 and so there are, in the stages of childhood, there are certain things that are appropriate for kids at every age, and they need those things to help them to develop, to help them to mature. 
Paul's saying in a spiritual sense, when I was a child, I, I thought like a child. I, I needed baby food for a period of time. I needed my mother's milk. But when I, when I became a man, I, I put away childish things. Paul is talking about the future. He's saying there, there are things that we need right now, the gifts of the Spirit operational within the church. We need them right now, but we're going to grow. We're going to mature. And one day, one day, something is going to happen in which our maturity will be realized to the full. And these gifts will no longer be needed. They're needed now in order to grow. They're needed now in order to strengthen the church. They're needed now in order for maturity to come to the body of Christ. But in the future, they will no longer be needed. And the second illustration he uses is verse 12. He says, now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror, or, or now we see in a mirror dimly. But then we shall see face to face. Now the mirrors of the ancient world are not, or were not like the mirrors that we have today. The only thing that, that, that is faulty with a mirror today is the reflection you see of yourself is actually the reverse in terms of your right is now your left and your left is now your right. You, you follow what I'm saying? But in the ancient world, they did not have the materials that we have in terms of mirrors. So sometimes it would be a brass plate or a silver plate and they would shine and buffet, buffet these things or they would look into a pond, a still pond in water and they could see through the sunlight the reflection of their face there. But it was always dimly. It, it, there, there was always a haziness to what was being seen. There was always a barrier from you really seeing what your true reflection is. But he says, but then face to face. There is coming a day, friends, when there will be, there will be no more barriers in our fellowship with God. Does that thrill you? Sorry. There will be no more barriers in our relationship with God. Does that thrill you? Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ. All that impedes us now will finally be gone. We will have unhindered intimacy with the Lord himself. Now those gifts are needed now. We need to be taught. We need preaching. We need, we need healing. We need words of wisdom. We need words of knowledge. We need faith that can move mountains. We need the gift of encouragement to be loosed in the church. We need all of these gifts. But one day these gifts will no longer be needed because we will see Jesus and we will be like Jesus. These gifts will vanish. These gifts will finally be overshadowed by the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus. One writer said, when the sun rises, we don't need to have the lights on anymore. And notice what he says in verse 12. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. I am fully known by God right now. God knows me intimately through and through right now. But when I see the Lord face to face, what is going to happen? Now I know in part, I only know a little bit about God. 
Yes, God has revealed himself to me in his word. God reveals himself to me and speaks to me through God's people and through the various gifts of the Spirit that are given to the church. Yes, praise God for that. But then I shall know fully. I will, as it were, know God fully. There will be no impediments whatsoever. And just as God knows me fully, so I will know God fully. This does not mean that I will be as all-knowing as God is, and neither will you. But it means that we will know him as perfectly as we can because we will see him face to face. So we thank God for the gifts of the Spirit, but we recognize that our focus is to be on love because love is permanent. And now verse 13, in his closing statement, Paul tells us that love is also preeminent. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Do you realize that faith, hope, and love are the three great pursuits of the Christian life? To grow in faith, to have our hope renewed every day, and to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts. The greatest of these is love, of course, but these are the three pursuits of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. Not miracles, not power, not the gifts. No, faith, hope, and love. The gifts of the Spirit are precious to us, and we are encouraged to desire the greater gifts because the greater gifts are the gifts that help others but the greater gifts, the pursuing of them, is not the great pursuit. No, what, is, what Paul is saying here is that the focus of our Christian life should be on these, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And why would he say that? Because one day, when the perfect comes, when Jesus comes, our faith will be turned into sight and the one we have hoped for will finally be here. Our hope will be fulfilled. Our hope will be realized. When we are with Jesus, faith and hope will have their purpose fulfilled. We won't need faith because we will see Jesus face to face. And we won't need hope when Jesus comes because he will have come. But love will remain throughout all eternity. And therefore, we must grow in that love. Let me quote Robinson again. Love is that thing which if a church has it, it doesn't really need much, much else. And if it doesn't have it, whatever else it has doesn't really matter very much. Let me share in closing three quick things with you. Three takeaways take on love and the gifts of the Spirit. Now, the first thing I'm going to say may seem like a contradiction to what I said last Sunday morning, but I'm going to say it anyway, and let me explain. The gifts are not essential to serving. The gifts are not essential to serving. Last Sunday morning, I talked to you about the fact that the gifts reproduce the ministry of Jesus. They build up the church. They're a manifestation of the Spirit. They're the unique ways in which we serve, and all of that is true but let me qualify what I said last week with what I think Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 13. 
The gifts of the Spirit are helpful. And the gifts of the Spirit are powerful. They help us in our service. They're powerful when we serve. But they are not essential to service. In other words, you don't need to know the gift that God has given you in order for you to serve Jesus and to serve others. And so many are focused on, well, you know, I gotta, I gotta have the gift. I gotta, gotta have this particular gift or I, I, can't, I can't get involved. I can't serve. Listen, that says more about your lack of love than it says about your lack of a gift. No. We don't need the gifts of the Spirit in order to serve. It's helpful. It's powerful, but it's not essential. So let me say it. I had to quote McCartney and Lennon at some point today. All you need is, all you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. So you know at the church, we, we, as people come through our first steps class, we, we encourage them to take a spiritual gifts test, and that's, that's important. And through the spiritual gifts test, it's not a foolproof thing. It's not something that came out of heaven to help us know perfectly what a person's gift is, but it does give an indication in some way, in terms of how an individual is wired and how, what the strengths or weaknesses of that person is. But you don't really need the gifts test. What you need is love for God's people and for others. The gifts are not essential to serving. Number two, ministry to others is the fertile field where love grows. And this answers the question, well, how, how can we really get this love? How can this love be manufactured? How can it be produced? How can it be reproduced? How can it grow in me in order that my life is characterized by it? And first of all, we would say, well, conversion, coming to faith in Christ. When we come to faith in Christ, God sheds abroad his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The, the, the whole thing of conversion baptizes us in the love of God. And it changes our hearts from hatred to love. We begin to love God now as opposed to hating him. And we find that because of our love for God, there, there, is, there is a love that comes for other people because we want them to know what, what we know too. And it certainly comes by praying and asking God to fill us with the Holy Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is love. But here's the most important thing to understand. When we minister to others, when we serve others, when we get involved in the life of the church to build the church up, that action itself is the fertile ground by which love begins to grow. And I say that because of what we see in Jesus. Because in Matthew chapter 9, the Bible tells us that Jesus was, was going through the various villages and towns and he was preaching and teaching and healing and, and casting out demons and he was ministering to the people. And it says there in Matthew 9 that when he saw the multitudes, he had compassion on them. It was as he ministered to them and saw their incredible needs that compassion welled up in the heart of our Lord Jesus because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. 
And he said to us, he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that the Lord will raise up workers, laborers for the harvest field. So let me say to you, if you're trying to find your place within our church, don't sit back and wait for feelings of love to motivate you. Don't wait for the right time to serve. The right time to serve is now. And when you engage in the field of, of, of service, it is fertile ground for love to grow in your hearts. And finally, number three, love is the reason to desire the greater gifts. I go back to chapter 12, verse 31 again, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. Why? Because it's those gifts that really help others. And the greatest is love. And it's because the greater gifts bless others that we should desire them to be manifest in our church the most. And so I close again with Haddon Rob Robinson. Love is that thing which, if a church has it, it doesn't really need much else. And if it doesn't have it, whatever else it has doesn't really matter very much. May God, the Holy Spirit, the one who gives his precious gifts to us, also strengthen your faith, fortify your hope, and cause love the love of God, the love of Christ, the love of the Spirit to flourish in your heart and among us as we fulfill Jesus' command to love one another as he has loved us. Amen.